Belinda Alexandra is an international best-selling author with a whole string of blockbuster historicals to her credit. But she's taken a new path with her latest book, The Mystery Woman. It's been characterised by one reviewer as Australian Gothic, a story of secrets, lies and unexplained death in a 1950s country town. In some ways it has quite a few um, similarities to Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, or it has hints of it. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today in Binge Reading, Belinda talks about her long road to publication, her passion for cats, and why psychopathic personality traits seem to be more evident today than ever before. But before we get to Belinda, just a reminder, if you enjoy the show, consider supporting us on Patreon. For the cost of a cup of coffee a month, you'll receive bonus exclusive news about more great books and their authors, as well as having the satisfaction of knowing that you are supporting our creative team in producing high quality content. But now, here's Belinda. Hello there, Belinda, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Oh, it's so good to be speaking with you, Jenny. Look, you're a best-selling and highly successful author. I know that when I started this podcast and asked around amongst my friends, a lot of times they said, get Belinda Alexandra on. So your name is really well known. But the latest book that we're going to be talking about today is The Mystery Woman. It's been called Australian Gothic by one reviewer, and you've said that it's a bit of a departure from some of your earlier books. Tell us a bit about how it's different. Well, a lot of my earlier books were big historical sagas, so they were sweeping generations and across countries and so on. But I think there comes a time in every author's life, especially when we've written quite a few books, that there's that other book inside of us that we want to to write. And I had been very, very influenced by those classic noir mystery stories. My mother used to like gobble those down (laughs) and I used to watch them with her when I was a child. And so I think I always had that desire in me to write something more contained. And so it was really an opportunity to do that, to just, I think, we like to stretch ourselves as authors and to do something a bit different. So I really wanted to create a story that was in a sort of more claustrophobic environment in a small Australian town and the kind of sort of thing that you could imagine that you would watch on TV looking through your you know, your fingers with a sense of suspense and, and atmosphere about it. Yes, and actually, as you've been talking, and as I was sort of picturing you with your mother, it does have shades of Rebecca, doesn't it? Just a little bit. Yes, look, I wanted to give a nod to that because I think that was one of the, I mean, it was one of the books that I've loved, but also the classic film done by Alfred Hitchcock was so wonderfully done. And when we talk about Gothic, a lot of the time, 
people get confused by that term. They think it might mean vampire novels or um, horror fiction. But a classic Gothic story is really a story that has elements of suspense and usually has a, a setting that could be naturally beautiful, but it sort of has a sense of foreboding about it. And you've got a damsel in distress and always the troubled male protagonist and a beast somewhere either it can be a beast within or an actual sort of physical beast, a wolf or or something else that's creating terror. And one of the best descriptions I think I've ever heard of gothic fiction is when they call it pleasurable terror. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great description, it is. So as you mentioned, The Mystery Woman is set in small town rural Australia in the 1950s. There isn't a slightly historical element, but it's a rather modern historical. And Rebecca retreats to a fictional place called Shipwreck Bay to escape a scandal in Sydney and discovers that it's not what it seems beneath the bucolic beauty of country life. How did that particular sort of aspect of the story develop for you? Well, I think continuing on with the sense of the Gothic and the foreboding, I personally feel that if I saw a house that looked haunted or scary, I wouldn't go near it. To me, it's obviously got some dark past to it. And I wouldn't be the person like you see in the the horror movies that always goes down to the basement. That would not be me. That would just be sending signals. What I think is really frightening is when something looks, you know, friendly, and looks inviting and looks completely safe as this, you know, lovely small town on the New South Wales coast in a very picturesque setting does. To me, it's when it's got that sense of the darkness or the foreboding underneath such a pretty inviting place and such lovely people on the surface. To me, that holds much more terror than a place that looks obviously frightening. Yes, that's right. And without giving anything away, some of your characters, although they seem really attractive, even at the beginning, you have a little bit of a sense of maybe it isn't all quite as it seems. So yeah, you do that very cleverly. You have said, I've seen a quote somewhere where you said, this is the age of psychopaths. And without giving away any spoilers in the story, I wondered if you could just expand on that statement a bit. Yes, look, I think it's something that I give quite a lot of thought to because apparently studies have shown that one in 20 people is a psychopath. So your chance of coming across one is actually a lot higher than you think. But psychopath, when we're talking about the personality disorder, is a cluster of behaviours that may have a number of causes. And not all psychopaths are sort of going around living in basements, smelling of dead bodies and (laughs) all of that. They can just be destructive in other ways and they can actually come across as quite normal initially. Lots of people have married them, lots of people have hired them in their, their companies and so on. So, but getting away from the sort of medically diagnosed psychopath. There are other things that could be considered psychopathic attributes. So if we look at the fact that some psychopaths is the environment, then we can look at the environment that we're creating in society and saying, what is it about 
the, our environment that's creating people with psychopathic attributes, not necessarily the full-blown personality disorder. And those sort of attributes are a, a complete lack of empathy for others, an incredible sense of entitlement, and that one is special in a way that it's okay for them to manipulate and use other people. And I think we are seeing an increase in that for a number of reasons in our society. One, because we've really become the me society and that's an attitude that's encouraged. We may think the way our grandparents were brought up was terrible <laughs> in many ways, like they were not overly praised or, or so on, but it also in many ways made them stronger and gave them a greater sense of community and that you know, the whole community had to come together in order to survive. And now I think sometimes in many ways we've become disconnected from each other. People are, are lacking connection. You know, I think social media can be a very positive thing. And here we are using technology to speak across, you know, the ocean to each other. It can be a very positive thing. But if we don't nurture real connections, then we have a possibility of becoming very self-absorbed and having it, and also things that we have instant gratification in our society. People go into meltdowns because, you know, their fast food or their Uber delivery is, you know, taking taking much longer. So we are sort of going into an age where we have people behaving like psychopaths, even if they don't actually have the actual disorder. And I think, you know, one of the themes of the mystery woman is domestic violence. And I think one of the things that we're coming to understand, a lot of the time we thought that men in particular who committed domestic violence were men who were out of control. They couldn't control their alcohol consumption. They were perhaps traumatised by the war and they had come back and been abusive. But I think as we study men who are abusive now, we see that it's actually quite deliberate and it's actually coming from a sense of entitlement and a very conscious sense that they actually enjoy controlling and destroying a strong mm. woman. Or a woman who loves them, they actually despise the fact that somebody loves them and trusts them. And that's very much a characteristic of a, a psychopath. And so I do think that it's important for us to be aware of what those characteristics are to make sure that we're not fostering them, you know, especially in our children, but in each other and in ourselves. Fantastic. The Mystery Woman also de deals with the double standard that applied in the 50s anyway, where if there was a, a political scandal of some sort, it was always the woman that got the blame and the man that was almost admired for being a naughty boy or being a sort of real red-blooded male. Do you think those double standards still apply today? Do you know, up until 12 months ago, I would have said absolutely. I would have said in a scandal of any sort. I mean, we have some TV personalities, male TV personalities who behave atrociously and then they sort of get taken off TV for two weeks and then they're back on with their own TV show and so on. Whereas a woman could make a slight mistake and then her career is over. She's never heard of again. And so up until very recently, that's been the case. But I've seen a massive turnaround in Australia. Our New South Wales premier, as much as the media tried to foist a scandal onto her and destroy her by and using terms for the man that she was involved with, because she's an unmarried woman. They were using terms like her lover and sort of like trying to put on this seedy side to what was just a normal 
casual relationship, which is fully free to have. And it was actually women who defended her and said, look, every woman's made a mistake and ended up with some dodgy guy that wasn't worthy of her. And they defended her. And I think it's really been a change in women because women were really quick to condemn and judge and destroy other women. And we've seen that with women in high offices in Australia before. But I think women have changed now. Yeah, well, that's that's great. That's wonderful. There is another subplot that runs through it, and that is the history of whaling in Australia. And until relatively recently, Australia was one of the active whaling nations. And I know that you've got a very strong commitment to animals and Australian wildlife. And I wondered if you just really liked to bring in that thread because of your personal convictions in that area. Look, it was a it was a good thread to bring in because it on a larger scale reflects the cruelty in the town because whaling is extremely cruel and it's still cruel today. There's no humane way to whale. Basically, a grenade is shot into the whale and it's blown up from the inside, which is horrific. But it was really reflecting the cruelty of the town. A lot of Australians weren't aware that Australia had a whaling industry right up until the late 70s. And what was interesting about it was that Long before uh, whaling was eradicated, there were alternative products to whale oil and products that were easier to produce and that would have benefited Australia if we produced them. It was very hard economically to have a whaling industry, whereas to grow grains and produce oil that way would have benefited our farmers much better. But it was really sort of a bloody-mindedness on the nations that we're not going to give up whaling, and it was sort of this activity that it shows how powerful we are. And in Britain, they were using submarines and helicopters and World War II technology to hunt whales. And to me, the reason why I bring that in is there's two sort of schools of thought when we look back on our history. And the first school of thought, you know, thought is something like, oh, thank God we're not like that anymore. And the other one is, God, we haven't changed it all. We're exactly the same. And so I guess I bring up that cruelty because people do sort of, you know, they're repelled by it. But if you think about now, there's so many cruel things that we still do to animals and we're still bloody-minded and all the reasons that people used to keep whaling, we still use. We still say, oh, our economy needs it. It's what we've always done. It's our tradition. We give all these um, excuses. And how will history look back on us in 100 Mm. years. Mm. So, I guess the thing is, for me, with books, a lot of people who write popular fiction say they should just be about entertainment. Nobody wants a social message in it. But for me, I can't see the point of writing a book unless it gets people to think as well, not just be entertained, but to think as well. Yeah, yeah, that, oh, that's that's wonderful. You You've talked quite a lot about your journey to publication and I mean you're really sitting well it looks like from the outside anyway sitting on the top of the mountain now you've got a whole back shelf there of really successful blockbuster style books but it took you quite a long time to get started you had a lot of dedication to it at the beginning didn't you tell us about that journey well yes look I um I think I grew up just being a writer my mother from the time I could hold a pen you know was encouraging me to write my stories down. And 
but you know, in Australia at that time, we were very much, oh, you have to get a real job. (laughs) And I didn't know anyone that was a a writer. I sort of grew up around engineers and, you know, people with very practical professions. But then I ended up going to university in California. And California is a very special place because the people around me were very much like, but you've got to go for your dream. (laughs) And they were very encouraging. So, I was very, very lucky. And so I came back to Australia fired up too with the idea of I will be a published author and that's what I will do. But it's not like in the movies where you have this little montage and, you know, one minute later after all these scenes, you've written a book and you're a best-selling author. I spend the next 10 years with everything I wrote being rejected. I wrote a novel, I wrote nonfiction, plays, letters to the editor, magazine articles, all of them were rejected. But I just had this strong desire. I can't say I had terrific self-confidence in myself, but I just had a strong desire and I just kept going. And eventually my novel White Gardenia was auctioned between all the publishers who rejected me previously. So, I'm really glad that I did stick with it. Yes, yes. Now, White Gardenias, I wonder if that was such a, your first breakthrough book because it had a very personal aspect to it, didn't it? Tell us about your own family history and how White Gardenias fitted into that. Yeah, look, with White Gardenia, I used a lot of my family history. My mother was a Russian born in China, in Habin. My grandparents had fled the revolution in Russia and they'd they'd moved to China and they couldn't go back to the Soviet Union. And then my mother had to flee China when um, the Japanese invaded and there was a communist takeover and she had to go through the Philippines and eventually end up in Australia. So it was quite an incredible journey story. But I think the magic of White Gardenia was there weren't a lot of women writing historical fiction at the time, but also it's a sort of love story between a mother and daughter because they're separated from each other. It wasn't so much the love story between a man and a a woman. It was really a mother-daughter love story that I think this mother and daughter struggle to find each other. And I think that really hit a note. And I think it was also at a time, um, you know, before Ancestry.com and people were sending off their DNA to find out you know, and people were doing their family trees and all of that. It was a, it was an idea of looking back at your history and learning about who you were. And I think it was just all at that time people were starting to think about their own histories and their own family ancestral stories and how they may have affected them. Yes, yes. You've also got a love for cats. In fact, as we've been talking, we've got the video on and behind you, one of your cats has just jumped <laughs> up on top of the cupboard and settled into a basket on top there. It's it's really lovely. Now, you've got three cats, I gather, and you have written a nonfiction book called The Divine Feline about that love. Tell us about where that passion developed. Well, I have loved cats since I was a child. They've always been an animal. I mean, I love all animals, but cats have been the animal animal that I've grown up with. And it really occurred to me that, you know, there's that stereotype of the crazy cat lady. And I just wanted to challenge that because I think that's taking away joy from something that gives women a lot of joy. And I also think the stereotype is an attack on women's independence because in a way it's sort of there's that horrible story of, well, if you don't get married and have children, you're going to end up this 
that crazy woman who's going to be living by herself with just her cats and then you'll die and no one will know you'll die and your face will be half eaten away (laughs) by your ravenous cats. And it's sort of this warning about women being um, independent. And studies have actually shown that women who love cats, far from being hoarders and and loners, are actually quite social and they're socially aware, they're cultured, they tend to be educated. And so I really wanted to break that stereotype. So in The Divine Feline, I I go through the history of women and cats from ancient Egypt through the Middle Ages to the present time to show why that strong bond is there and why it's been denigrated. Because in a sense, it's not just women who love cats that are attacked by that image. It's it's women in general. But there's also lots of fun in the book. It's kind of a, you know, it's, it's a compilation of things that cat lovers in general would love. So there's the history of of cats from ancient Egypt. There's my own personal memoirs of growing up with cats and there's all sorts of humour about famous people and their cats and and advice on cat behaviour and and other tips and so on. Fantastic. As you were talking, I was thinking about the stereotype of the witch and the cat. I mean, often witches were associated with cats as well, weren't they? Well, see, that really comes from ancient Egypt when cats were associated with the gods of women. Mm. The way that cats were domesticated was they were African wild cats living in the desert and when the Egyptians finally settled and weren't nomadic anymore, they were storing grain. And, of course, the grain could be destroyed by mice and rats, as we've seen in Australia at the moment very, very quickly. So the Egyptians tried to attract the African wildcats to their grain stores to keep the rodents down, and they would give them milk and they would offer them warm beds, and eventually the cats decided to stay because they knew they were on a good thing. And because it was associated with food, uh, the cat became associated with women and eventually was associated with the gods of women. And then in the Middle Ages, when you get the church that wants to denigrate the power of women, they did a very good propaganda case that, you know, women who had cats were witches and and so on. Mm. And that's why women and cats were burned Mm. at the stake Mm. together. Mm. Yeah. Terrible. Look, moving along from talking about your individual books to just looking at your slightly wider career, when you were doing that writing for 10 years, you were also working in a full-time job. What what were you actually doing in that time? Uh, Well, I worked in publicity and public relations, and I also worked for a conference company. So, when I wrote uh, White Gardenia, and this is what I sort of say to encourage people who are working full-time but who who have a novel in them that they want to write. I was working for a conference company. I was constantly in New York. I was constantly on planes, in hotel rooms. Um, I lived with five other girls and my room came off the kitchen, so I never really had a quiet place to write. But I was passionate about telling the story. And so I tell people, don't worry so much about having the perfect environment or lots of blocks of time to write. Fire up the passion, you know, find a story that you're really passionate about telling because White Gardenia was written on aeroplanes. It was written on the subway, you know, coming home from from work. And I would get up at five o'clock in the morning before my roommates got up when I had that little hour of quietness to write. And so I think find a story that you're passionate about, fire up the passion and, and don't worry so much about the time management or how you're going to do it or whatever. You'll you'll find a way if you're really passionate about that story. Yeah. 
That's wonderful. Is there a turning point, a point of either talent or a decision you made that helped you come to that breakthrough, something that was the turning point for you, do you think? I think, you know, you can't see ahead of you. None of us can see ahead of us. And so you do battle with your doubts because you can't see that you're going to be successful and yet you're spending all this time on your own working on this book and for years and on your weekends and so on and you never know what's going to happen. So, my thing, it's not so much a turning point, it's a habit or a way of looking at things and I would just sit down every writing session And I had the ring that had belonged to my grandparents and it was their wedding bands melded together with my birthstone and my mother had given that to me. And I would just put that out next to me and I would look at it and I would just think, help me to be the best that I can. I don't know what's going to happen to this story. I don't know if I'm going to be published. I don't know what my future is, but just allow me to create and offer the very best that I can. And then I just let the outcome go. And I think that's really, with anything, I think that's when the magic comes. When we don't hold on so much to the out, you know, the outcome, we're more concerned about who we are and who we become through doing what we're doing. You know, we're not exactly, you know, we, we don't know what it's going to happen. We can't control that part, but we can control putting in the very best of ourselves into something. It sounds incredibly wise, Belinda. It really does. But this is the joys of binge reading, and we're starting to come to the end of our time together. Tell me about your reading pleasures and passions in the past and today. Who are your favourites and who would you like to recommend to people? Well, I, you know, my reading started probably with Charles Dickens. Like it was Charles Dickens that really wanted, really encouraged me to want to write a book because I loved his coming of age stories and I loved the way that the characters would begin somewhere. They met bad people, they met good people, they learnt about themselves and they were very different people at the end of the book. They might have been a bit bruised and battered by life, but they were wiser and, and deeper people for it. And I thought his way of looking at society and looking at people's weaknesses and their strengths was very, very insightful. So, he was a huge influence on me. And today, you know, I read a lot of nonfiction for research for my books, but authors that I like, I think we've got, you know, some fantastic contemporary female authors. Someone that I'm reading at the moment is Natasha Lester. She writes fantastic historical fiction, very well researched. You know, there's all kinds of authors and I love Kate Morton's stuff as well. I love her uh, sense of place and that rich detail. It feels like she writes such classic stories as well, but she adds an element of the contemporary and the modern to it as well. So, I really um, enjoy her stories as, as well. I like to read widely and I like to have recommendations of books that I may not otherwise touch. I, I like Leanne Moriarty's books as well because I think they're a great sort of take on modern society. And also, you know, my book is set in a small town, a claustrophobic environment. But that's not necessary because I believe that small country towns 
uh, claustrophobic. I've vis visited many beautiful country towns where the people are beautiful. It's more the mentality of a small group. And I think Liao Moriarty brings that out very well. Like it's the mentality of this small, tight, claustrophobic group, whether it's a mother's group in a, you know, prestigious, affluent area or whether it's people at a health, <laughs> you know, farm altogether. She brings these groups of, of people and the dynamics together very well. Yes, yes. You mentioned earlier that, you know, when you started, there weren't so many historical novels being written by women. There's been an absolute boom in historical fiction in the last decade, hasn't there really? I mean, there's just myriads of really great female writers doing historical fiction. And you have a little bit of a sense that history is being rewritten in the popular fiction area because we're looking at so many events from the female viewpoint now that have never really been considered from a woman's viewpoint before. Why do you think that has become so popular? Well, I think if I look back to my school years and people are quite surprised by this because a lot of people say to me, oh, you must have really loved history at school. And I hated history at school. I was bored out of my head by it because the way history was interpreted was it was a series of events and it was all about political events. But to me, history is really made by every single one of us. And even if we look at, say, the Second World War, we can go through these, you know, political events and we can say that Hitler caused a, a lot of things. But that's, to me, not really the truth. A person like Hitler couldn't have come to power without a culture that would allow someone like Hitler to come to power. So that makes me think, well, what was the person in the street thinking? And what were people saying at universities and what were people saying in magazines? What was the culture that allowed someone like that to come? And then why would people be influenced by that? Because if the culture was completely different, he would have just been a madman standing on the corner, you know, mm. shouting things. So for me, history is really about people. And to me, that's empowering. And I think that's what women are doing so well. They're bringing in, history is not about you know, what people in Parliament House are deciding. History is about what we're deciding on the street, what we're thinking, what we're deciding to believe, how we're deciding to act. And I think we're all fascinated by when there's a massive world event, what is it about, you know, what is it about a person that will suddenly become heroic and then another person that will just, you know, denounce their next-door neighbours that they've lived to you know, next door to you for years just so that they can have their apartment and their furniture if they want to denounce a Jewish family. So I think it's much more, women are much more bringing out that personal side, the the relationships that that bring, you know, those catastrophic events to, to a head. Yeah, that's great. We are really coming to the end of our time now. <laughs> so talk about what you're working on. Have you got any new projects? What does your next 12 months look like? Look, my next 12 months, my next three months will be um, extremely busy as I've got to finish my next manuscript, which will be another classic sort of mystery, but it'll bring in more, more uh, elements of a historic novel as well. So I'm really enjoying doing that. I'm also looking at the possibility of doing another nonfiction that will actually be around history as well. So that's an exciting project that I'm working at on developing. I'm also doing a, a masterclasses in screenwriting. So I hope that I can actually uh, turn one of my books into a film script as well. That's, a, that's an aim that I've got as well. 
And again, that's going back to we don't know what the future looks like, but sometimes we've just got to give something a go and and see how it turns out. Yes, yes. I know that you enjoy interacting with your readers and I'm just wondering how have you been affected by this last 12 or 18 months with our worldwide pandemic? Has it affected the way that you can interact with your readers or have you found other ways to to get in touch with them and be in touch with them? Yeah, well, what I thought was really interesting, especially about the publishing industry and about writers, was how quickly we adapted to a very quickly changing you know, circumstance. Many of us were just about to go on to book tours when the pandemic hit. And, um, you know, we can often be critics of technology, but I think technology was there like a, a saviour for us in so many ways because I do love to go out. When I finish a book, I've spent so much time on my own that I do like to go out and meet my readers at events and so on, but we just couldn't do that. But I did find that the technology actually brought gifts in so many ways because I was now able to do talks that were going out to regional um Australia, where it wasn't really practical for my publisher to send me to, you know, as we were saying earlier, to a a country town with six people. But by technology, I could. And what I thought was really good was that a lot of times everybody over 50 had sort of tried to avoid technology. (laughs) Many, many people, not everyone, but a lot of people had. But they sort of more or less had to get their grandchildren and children to show them how to, to use it. And so it's opened up the world for them. My 90-year-old father does Zoom sessions and so on. And so, it's it's opened up a world. I mean, I think we do need personal connection and there there is a difference when we have that energy of people in a room together. But in order to, you know, make do and reach each other, I think it's actually turned out a blessing. And I think going forward in the future, we'll have both in-person events, but we'll also be able to reach each other over technology as well. Yes. So where can your readers find you online? Well, I actually have, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. They'll find me under Belinda Alexandra Author. I actually have a very snazzy website, which is belinda-alexandra.com. And if they go on there, they can actually sign up for my newsletter because I do a newsletter that's so much fun. I usually interview other authors on it. So you will find out in that newsletter books that I'm reading. I also give writing writing tips um, for people in the newsletter and we also have some cat advice in there and some humorous articles and competitions and so on. If, you know, readers go onto my website and sign up for my newsletter, they'll get lots of um, fantastic little things there. That's fun and we will put all of those links in the show notes that that go with this podcast episode so they'll be there for people to find. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Belinda. It's been great talking. Great talking to you too, Jenny. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at DC 
audio services at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.